0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM.
1: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show about the role of policy in helping more women... Join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. Our phones are open at 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And we would love to hear from you. Call and say hi or share your questions and thoughts. We're going to talk about everything from family leave and the wage gap to reproductive rights. So give us a call and get in the game. 1-844-WHARTON. It's 844-942-7866. Whether you're looking forward to becoming a parent someday are deep in the working mother juggle struggle, are happily parenting no one at all. Federal workplace policies will impact you in more ways than you may realize. Whether it's being protected from harassment on the job, having access to affordable quality health care, or being able to care for an alien parent or partner, policy impacts both our individual well-being and our collective economic security. Which is why we've decided to dive into those policies today with the help of the nonprofit, nonpartisan National Partnership for Women and Families. Jessica Mason is their senior policy analyst and engagement manager for workplace programs. She oversees in-house research and data analysis, tracks developments in formal research, and develops advocacy resources related to the workplace and economic security agenda. Prior to landing at the National Partnership, she was an instructor in gender and women's studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and a researcher at the Center for Media and Democracy. She's investigated everything from economic justice, anti-corruption issues, gender politics, national. Nationalism, social movements, all the way to authoritarianism in contemporary Russia, putting that Ph.D. in anthropology from Wisconsin-Madison to good use. So with that, let me say, Jessica, welcome to Women at Work. Hi, it's good to be here. We're so glad to have you join us today because we got a lot that we need you to help us understand. So I want to start off by saying it's clear that you're an expert on a range of issues that I see as deeply interrelated, and how they affect people's lives, especially women and families. Do they all come into play in your work at the partnership?
0: I definitely would say so. And as you were reading off that list, it did sound like a lot. Um, And so I wanted to start a little bit with my background, which is in some ways unusual for the public policy world. Um, I have done some research on gender politics in Russia, which in many ways seems very far from the world in D.C. Um, But my work there really informed my belief that um, regular people working hard for change can actually make a difference. Um, And and my belief that um, one of the great things about the United States is that Unlike Russia, which unfortunately is sort of crushed under the weight of a really corrupt, um, corrupt economy and, and corrupt political system, um, in the United States, um, you know, it, it may be easy to be cynical, but in fact, um, reg- regular people working together to build a movement can actually change things here. Um, and so I find that is sort of at the core of my work here
1: at the National Partnership. So wh- it sounds like your work at the Partnership is not just intellectually driven, that it's both a mission for the Partnership and a mission for you. What are your individual and collective goals? Um, That's such a good question. Um, And I
0: wanted to start with um, actually reading you our vision statement, um, which is something that we spent a lot of time working through um, and updating this last year. Um, So at the National Partnership, we are working for a just and equitable society in which all women and families can live with dignity, respect, and security. Every person has the opportunity to achieve their potential, and no person is held back by discrimination or bias um, and so what we're really looking for is a society where all people can live um, freely and with equality and be treated with dignity. Um, and so that's something that I really focus on in workplace policies, but it informs all of our work um, at the organization, including in reproductive rights and also in healthcare advocacy.
1: So what percentage of the work is on research and what percentage is actually trying to impact public policy?
0: Um, I would say, actually, everything sort of feeds into everything else. Um, For example, we just finished up a really in-depth study on paid family and medical leave programs in three states, which we can get into the details of later. Um, But that research was really sort of what is happening on the ground in those programs. How are they being used? um, How could they be approved for people? Um, And then that research immediately goes back and feeds into um, both what we are um, working with other advocates and grassroots folks um, so that they are informed to be able to know what to ask for from their policymakers, um, and also for us to help um, policymakers even here in D.C. learn about sort of what what's, what are the great innovations being driven in the states um, that could really be brought to bear in the federal landscape.
1: So I found it really interesting that the mission statement is about um, equity and dignity and security, and that At the same time, and I guess as part of this, the partnership is fundamentally nonpartisan. Talk to me about how you guys navigate that. That's a good question,
0: Um, and certainly one we um, spend a lot of time thinking about, because, of course, on a lot of issues, um, there do seem to be pretty strong partisan divides. um, And so that is something that we do have to navigate. Um, I will say... One of the things that I have found most interesting and rewarding in the workplace um, policy space lately is that there is actually more room for agreement than people sometimes assume. Um, So, for example, we have seen um, paid leave programs advanced in several states um, with bipartisan support. Um, And that conversation, at least, you know, we can talk about the policy details in a bit, but the conversation has become more bipartisan than it has been historically. It's true. And And so there are some openings.
1: Yes. And I'd also like to back up and say that the heart of that mission is nothing political. It's about some fundamental human values that we would like to believe everyone agrees to.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, and that's certainly what we see in the folks who are fighting for our policies. And, you know, the reality is, you know, when I say we want equality for all women and families, well, women are half of the people, um, and they're <laughs> certainly not all members of one party. Um, and families is everybody, um, you know, however you define that that term for yourself. Um, and so we really are looking for policies, um, working on policies that affect um, just about everybody in this country.
1: I appreciate that the mission is framed as a kind of social imperative. I also know the history of the partnership, and a lot of it's driven by an understanding of what creates economic security. Can you help fill in some of the gaps there?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the national partnership is almost 50 years old, um, and I have not been here nearly all of that time, (laughs) so it's really an honor to work at an institution like this. Um, And so my predecessors fought for the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, um, helped fight for the Civil Rights Act, the Family and Medical Leave Act, um, the Affordable Care Act, and really all of these really important pieces of legislation that have helped advance people's ability to seek health care, um, to stay in the job um, when they're um, having a child or dealing with health care issues. Um, and all of those things are super important um, for economic security. You know, most of us um, get our income through jobs. Most of us, you know, didn't uh, inherit it or, you know, doesn't grow on trees. Um, and so the ability to um, have that job, to be treated fairly, to be paid fairly, um, and to be able to keep working, um, even if you're you know, working, on a, working through a medical condition or a family caregiving emergency, um, all of those things are really fundamental to most people's day-to-day life.
1: And particularly when we look at their short-term and long-term economic stability.
0: Very much so, very much so. Um, so one of the core numbers that we work with a lot is what's called the gender wage gap. Um, which is just a sort of top-line measure of how uh, fairly or unfairly the economy and our whole kind of economic system is treating women. So we know that when you compare even just looking at women and men who are both working full-time year-round, which, of course, is not everybody, um, but looking just at those folks, um, we know that at the median, at the middle income, women are being paid just 80 cents to every dollar a man is paid. Um, So that right there is sort of a tip-off that something isn't quite working in this system.
1: So we, as you might imagine, here on Women at Work, we've talked about the wage gap a lot. We're troubled by it. We want to see it close. But we also have learned that it's much more complicated than people realize. Even as I was diving into the amazing reports that you guys have written and the briefing statements, um, that when you drill down, um, you can sometimes see statistics that will say that the wage gap can be as large as 49 cents to the dollar over a 15-year period as low as 85 cents to the dollar for Asian American women. Um, I'm guessing that that's because when you talk about 80 cents to the dollar, that's the median between men and women, but that this can, can and must be sliced must fi- much finer to really understand the dynamic of what's happening to people in the workplace.
0: Yeah, very much so. And I think anyone in the business world understands you sort of often have other numbers, beneath the top line numbers that, that are telling you the fuller story. Um, So a couple of important things about the wage gap are, um, number one, even when you control for all kinds of things like education, occupation, um, length of time in the workforce, about 40% of that wage gap still remains. And so that's what we attribute to um, very likely that kind of job-to-job discrimination when people are doing very, very similar work but still being paid differently. Um, So that is very much still happening um, despite... um, Having made some progress in closing it, it's still there. Um, so for that, um, that piece of the wage gap, we're really looking at um, advancing legislation like the Paycheck Fairness Act, uh, which would do things like make it um, um, harder to um, discriminate against people's um, current salary based on their past salary. This is a salary history bans. Um, And also close some loopholes so that people could pursue their cases if they if they discover wage discrimination. Um, So that's kind of if you control down for almost everything, there's still that chunk of the wage gap. Um, But, you know, when you use that phrase control for you're sort of cutting out a lot of the story. You know, there are reasons why women um, tend to be in occupations that are paid less. Mm -hmm. Um, There are reasons that women tend to spend more time out of the workforce than men overall. Um, And as you mentioned, if we sort of zoom further out um, and look not just at all women and all men, um, but sort of break it down by race and ethnicity, then we start to see even bigger gaps between, for example, many women of color and white men.
1: So I Um, want to unpack this a little further because I think I love the way that you're putting this. Um, I think of all the times that we've talked about it, nobody's really helped us focus on this question of when something we control for. And so can you back up a little, and as a researcher, explain to the non-researchers what that means?
0: Yeah, so what that means is... um often you want to sort of, when you're doing any comparison, you want to make sure that it's an apples to apples comparison. Um, And so one of the biggest questions about the wage gap is what are the apples that you should be comparing? Um, And so there are some folks who want to sort of zoom in and say like, what we really want to look at are women and men who are almost exactly the same in every way and have the same life history and have the same job experience and have all the same credentials and just look to see if they're being paid differently. And so that's, this area where you still see about 40 percent of that wage gap happening.
1: And I think Um, what's important to note there is that that process of controlling for those differences, so you are comparing apples for apples, is part of good science. Yeah, yeah. But Um, at the same time, what it's then doing is, A, um, reinforcing that there's a bias that exists regardless of everything else. Right. But then, as you said, it's oversimplifying the conversation because all those things that you controlled for and took out of the equation are all important factors in our society that are affecting the women's economic security.
0: That's exactly right, Um, because often what happens is someone will say, well, if you control for all of these things, a certain part of the wage gap disappears. So it's really just about women's choices. Um, and that's really kind of a, a false cul-de-sac to go down um, <laughs> because, you know, I, I think most of us have this experience of like, is it really a choice per se when um, you may have um, experienced sort of a leaky pipeline in your educational process and it's become, um, you are in a, a hostile educational environment that's discouraging women from pursuing STEM fields, for example. right? Um, or is it really a woman's choice if you have a child, and your employer doesn't really offer any leave, and you can't find affordable daycare, and so you stay out of the workforce for a couple of years.
1: Right, or you're not promoted because you weren't perceived as capable because you're a woman, so therefore, if you're controlling for position, that also goes out the window.
0: Exactly.
1: Yeah, so the pipeline has a big role to play in this, um, but so does the effect of policy, which we're so glad you're here to help us explain. For those who just tuned in... This is Women at Work on Sirius XM 132. I'm Laura Zarrow, and my guest today is Jessica Mason. She's the Senior Policy Analyst and Engagement Manager for Workplace Programs at the National Partnership for Women and Families, which is why we're talking about data and policy and how it affects our day-to-day lives. If you'd like to ask a question or make a comment, share your own stories, we'd love to hear from you. You don't even have to use your real name. You can just call in and say you're Patty. We'll just let everybody be patty today. The number is 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So, Jessica, help connect the dots for me between family leave policy and the wage gap.
0: Yeah. So one of the biggest drivers of the wage gap that we see um, is really all about motherhood. Um, I'm sorry to say because moms are so great. Um, So when you look (laughs) at the wage gap— Right, exactly. Um, and so when you actually look over time, you know, I, I gave you this, this top line figure, 80 cents to the dollar is what women are paid. If you're looking at women who are working full-time year-round compared to similar men, blah, 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 if you look at a, at a larger time scale, um, if you look across a 15-year period of people's earnings um, and look at everything, including people who are spending time out of the workforce, um, you find that the wage gap is actually women being paid just 49 cents to every dollar paid to a man over oh that my lifetime
1: God.
0: period, which is incredibly stark. Um, and that is primarily because women are much more likely to take time out of the workforce, and that most often is to have a child.
1: So that reflects both the wage gap that existed while they were working theoretically full-time, mm-hmm. potentially affected by their education, what access to opportunity they've had within their career or their professional lives. And Mm -hmm. then that's the math adds into that the time that they spend not working, not earning anything. Right. And that's Um, just in a 15-year period. What then happens long-term when you think about things like Social Security?
0: Yeah, long term, it gets really, really, um, really, really unfortunate and stressful. Um, we know that on average, by the time women reach retirement age, um, they're typically receiving Social Security benefits that are 20% less than the ones men receive. Um, and I should shout out to Social Security, which is having its 84th anniversary today, and that is one of the policies, <laughs> public policies, that has been the most successful at fighting poverty in old age. And so if women are not receiving the full benefit of that policy, it means something has gone really wrong upstream.
1: And also women statistically live longer than men by a number of years. That's right. So it's 20 percent less and it has to last longer.
0: Yes. And then on top of that, um, as you may imagine, because of those lower earnings over a lifetime, women are also less likely to have as much private savings um, in any retirement account that they may have. And so it's really getting hit multiple times for this.
1: And so, you know, we've talked a lot about all the things that we can do as individuals to help ourselves negotiate, step up to the plate, all the ways that we can try and advocate for ourselves. We've also talked a lot about the way that organizations need to treat everyone fairly and create these opportunities. It's interesting to see the attention that goes into policy. How much can policy correct those two, those two problems?
0: Well, we know that it can go a long way to correct those problems, Um, and I would say we definitely think of the public public policy as sort of setting a floor for things um, and sort of helping nudge things along, and then, um, of course, individual employers and individual um, contractual negotiations can, can add on to that. Um, and so with something like paid leave, we know that it has an effect because other countries have it and they have smaller wage gaps. <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> Short term um, and long term, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Short term and long term. Um, and so it's really, you know, uh, I, I do most of my work on paid leave, but I, you know, I can't go without saying childcare here, too, um, because having access to quality, affordable child care is sort of the other puzzle piece um, for what's happening around early motherhood.
1: Yes. So we're going to get into that in a second. But I see a theme developing today. And so far, it's whether we're talking about the wage gap or um, family leave policies, that we as a society, particularly in the era of the quick soundbite, the Twitter feed, the all-too-easy-to-copy headline, um, we keep feeding and replaying very simple statements about complex issues. And it sounds like part of what we really need to do is look at each one of those and dive into it to understand that it's more complex and that it deserves our attention.
0: That's that's absolutely right. Um, and, it, you know, it does take a little more time and focus that way, but you get a better sense of the full picture.
1: And so that we can also make better choices about who we're voting for, what policies we're advocating for, and how we want to make decisions in our own lives to work around the problems that aren't solved yet. Exactly. Okay, so now talk to me about childcare and how this plays into all of this. So
0: childcare is the other piece. Um, so the way the way we think about it, um, paid family medical leave is that longer term leave that you need to be away from the workplace for an extended period to, for example, deal with pregnancy complications recover from childbirth, bond with an adopted child, um, or also for things like elder care responsibilities or if you have a chronic health condition later in life. Um, And I should also mention that we sort of see um, women dropping out of the workforce early um, very often to take care of an aging parent or spouse. Um, And so we want to have that comprehensive policy in place so that when people need that extended time away from their job, they can have it, um, and it can be paid because very few of us can afford to go without a paycheck. <laughs> um, and then, of course, the childcare comes in um, when someone is returning to work because you know infants can't take care of themselves, obviously. Um, and so, what we see is that across the country, childcare is really unaffordable for most people. Um, I live here in DC, which actually has the highest uh, uh, costs, uh, monthly cost for childcare in the in the country. Um, and actually, the the cost of childcare in DC and in many other parts of the country is now uh, more expensive than college, um, which is already too expensive. So, uh, <laughs> so it's a pretty, pretty difficult situation. Um, and, that, and that often really impacts gender equity, um, because often when you have a heterosexual couple thinking about what to do when they have an infant, um, there's sort of this choice between going back to work or not. Um, and thinking about you know, how a family can afford to make ends meet. And because of that wage gap, we know that women typically are already paid a little bit less than men. And so when you're sitting down with your budget, looking at that spreadsheet, you're thinking, well, do we drop the higher income or the lower income? Right. Um, and so it often just sort of happens to work out that women are then staying home more often than men after that child is born or adopted.
1: And, well, it would be nice to say, take one for the team and scrimp and save because, If you can make it through today, it's going to help you financially in the long run. Most families don't have the capacity to scrimp or save any further than they already are. It costs money to go to work.
0: That's right. We know most people are already really, really stretched. Um, And so when we haven't put in place a set of policies that make sure that, number one, people can have that paid leave in the first place – um, which is a huge if. Um, we know that only 17% of people in this country have access to paid family leave at their job. Um, and then on top of that, you talk about returning to work, and you say, in a place like D.C., I think uh, childcare annually is I think up to $26,000 a year.
1: Oh my God! Um, you
0: know that's more than a lot of people make. Um, and so those two pieces together just make it really, really hard um, for new parents to stay in the workforce.
1: Share with me some of the context of. You know, it's I think it's a little too easy for some people to say, well, the mom should just stay at home or whoever makes less money should just stay at home and you can live on one income. How realistic is that in America? And how much of the challenge there is about the choice of how we the choices we make as individuals or the economic realities surrounding us?
0: It can be really tempting to think about this as an individual problem. And of course the truth is that, you know, generations of working people have already struggled with this issue and, and really suffered under it. But the reality is, it's an issue that affects all of us. Um, So, women's lower workforce participation is removing about $500 billion in activity from our economy every year.
1: Oh my God. Okay, pause and please explain, because that's a big number.
0: That is a huge number. Um, that is what is lost in economic activity from women leaving the workforce um, or having to work part time or in lesser jobs because they haven't been able to be fully supported in the workplace.
1: Okay, so I have a question there. We often hear that um, men are afraid that it's a zero sum game. If all those women are in the workforce, are they taking jobs away from men, or are those um, is is that a workforce that the economy needs that won't um, that'll be additive, not Um, a replacement.
0: It's definitely additive. Um, And we've seen that happen over time over the, you know, the earlier part of the 20th century, where, um, particularly for middle class white women, you saw a lot of women gradually coming into the workforce in the 70s and 80s. And there was a lot of economic growth associated with that. Um, And so it's really... um, the, the problem is that growth sort of stagnated because we haven't really made room in our workplaces um, for the caregiving and um, that that sort of um, work that used to be done either by stay-at-home parents, if you were a well-off family, um, or by hiring a poorly paid person, if you were if you were. Um, Um, If you were that even better off family.
1: So is it that by sending more women to work, enabling more women to get into the workplace and stay in the workplace, it, it expands the whole system so that as people work, they have a need for support and they're generating products, goods and services and that it expands from there?
0: That's right. You sort of have more people working. um, And then those people have, you know, more money in their pockets. So they have, you know, go out and buy things um, and they can buy services. um, And, you know, what we are also working for is to make sure that all of those jobs are, are paid well enough for people to live on. Um, And so going back to work isn't this, like, subtractive game. You sort of have more jobs in the economy because there are more people buying and selling and producing things.
1: So if you're talking to somebody who's been watching old World War II movies and, you know, thinking about Rosie the Riveter and why the women needed to leave the workforce to make jobs for the men, um, some of that's a little historical fiction and a little historical interpretation. Um, Some of it was real. But that in in our economy now— we need these women to be in the workforce for everyone's well-being.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I would say most people want to be also. You know, there's a satisfaction that comes from making that contribution to your family and, and um, being able to support yourself when it's needed. Um, and I think, you know, what we, one of the things that we've really seen a sea change in over a couple of generations, I think, is that the idea that women can be working and can be succeeding and having careers has become really, really normalized across the, uh, across the spectrum um, and we even see this when we talk to, you know, there's maybe a stereotype that more conservative voters aren't on board with this, but you know the majority of them get it. You know, they're, uh, if you're talking about, for example, um, a conservative voter like my dad, who I'll bring in as an example, um, you know, his wife is working, his daughter is working, he's really proud of us. Um, And so there's not as much of a cultural disconnect there as there might have been a a generation or two ago.
1: Even though it is still real that even if women are making the informed, conscious choice to stay home, and that's the decision they're making with their families, um, their years spent not earning um, is going to have a long-term impact on their Social Security and their retirement savings.
0: That's right. That's right. Um, And another policy change that we support that would help fix that is what's called caregiving credits and Social Security, um, so that you would actually be credited for that really important work that you're doing at home, um, even though it's unpaid work.
1: Really? Tell me more about Mm -hmm. this. This sounds like a totally rational idea.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's this, of course, there's this big idea, you know, often when we talk about work, we're talking about sort of formal jobs in the workplace that, you know, you um, are paying taxes, and you you know get a paycheck and you and you sort of get all those contributions in in your um kind of FICA deductions that you see um and of course, none of that happens if you are working at home as a parent or as a caregiver. Um, and so we often sort of separate that as if it's a sort of different kind of work because it's not being paid, um, and that often is kind of associated with maybe a, a stigma or a devaluing of that of that work, even though it's really central to um, all of our families mm-hmm. um, and our whole, whole economy really wouldn't work without it. Um, and so there are a lot of conversations ongoing about you know how do you really recognize that important value in economic terms and make sure that, that people doing care work, um, you know whether it's on a short-term leave from a job job, um, or whether it's longer term, to make sure that that's
1: recognized. It's essential. It's essential. It's real labor, and it should be honored. Talk to me about health care.
0: Health care is critical. Uh, I would guess that just about everybody listening to this knows that unaffordable health care can be a huge problem for any family's budget, um, and that Uh, Lack of access to health care, lack of health insurance, uh, can be a real barrier to seeking care when you need it. Um, So health care is, of course, an everyone issue, but it is a women's issue in some particular ways. Number one, um, there are a number of conditions that disproportionately affect women. Um, For example, women... Uh, are a little bit more likely to experience um, chronic mental health conditions. Um, and so it's really important that insurance be required to treat mental health equally to physical health um, because they're, they're both real and they're, they're really interconnected. Um, and then additionally, uh, women in um, households are often the person who is sort of most responsible for the family's health. Um, often um, mothers of kids are going to be the one who's most likely scheduling the doctor's appointments, um, taking kids for their checkups, um, and doing all of that kind of day-to-day health care work. And so making sure that we have a health care system that um, works well with women and that works well with health um, um, care providers um, and the healthcare manager is a family's health um, is really really essential.
1: So explain that a little more to me. So is it that because women are the healthcare providers and managers for their families, if it's kind of like putting on the oxygen mask on the airplane, if you're not healthy, then how can you get your kids to the doctors? Or is it that um, you, if you don't have healthcare, it's likely that they don't have healthcare.
0: A little bit of both, Um, and so, for example, um, you know, I I work primarily on workplace policies, and so there's an important intersection here where um, when we have workplaces that don't provide people with paid sick days, and that's just about a third of people right now cannot earn a single paid sick day at their job, that means um, people in those jobs may not be able to take a couple of hours off during the workday to take a sick kid to the health clinic, Um, and often that's going to be women who are doing that work. And so here it is, women taking maybe unpaid time away from a job, um, maybe having to take a part-time job instead of a full-time job so that they can do that work, uh, maybe losing a job um, because they're dealing with their family's health care emergencies. And so that's a burden that, you know, affects a lot of people but often falls disproportionately on women.
1: So when we think about the kind of tragedy that springs from that, there's – A woman not getting adequate health care. There's the fact that because of the inability to have paid sick leave, she either stops making enough money to take care of her family or can lose her job. Um, And then you have the fact that the kids aren't getting the health care that they need. Um, That's pain and suffering from the inside out. How does that then impact the rest of us? What's the economic impact of that happening to family after family?
0: It can be huge. In the first place, we know that a lot of conditions um, can be managed or treated if they're caught early on, Um, but if you have untreated conditions, those can become worse for that individual and become much more expensive. A simple illness or injury can turn into a lifelong um, chronic condition. Um, A person losing their job has this whole ripple effect where they may um, no longer be, be able to make ends meet. They may lose their housing. Um, they may um, really fall on hard times um, and those um, you know both mean that our, our neighbors and our, our, our fellow uh, members of this country are really suffering um, and they also have cost to the whole system um, where you know if you treat someone early on, um, they can live well um, and we all can um, have savings from that.
1: So that's a part that I'd like you to explain more because while well, personally, I feel... A responsibility for taking care of everybody. I know there are people out there who believe, I take care of my family, you take care of your family. If you suffer, that's your problem. Um, talk to me about what the cost is to the system. Like, once again, and this comes up a lot around here, if we can't get people to do things because their moral imperative is our moral imperative, what's the economic driver to get people to care about this?
0: Sure. I'll go back to paid sick days, which is, I think, such a, such a key example Um, When working people don't have paid sick days on the job, um, they don't get their flu vaccinations. Then they go to their job when they have the flu. Um, And then especially if they're working at a restaurant or in a health clinic or in a school, um, they then go and spread that to other people. Um, And then it becomes this um, sort of epidemic effect. (laughs) Right. Um, And we actually have solid data showing that in cities and states that have passed paid sick days laws to guarantee that all workers can earn them,
1: there are actually lower flu transmission rates. That's amazing. So then that not only keeps everybody at work, so everybody's earning a wage, work is continuing to benefit because you have productive members of your talent force, and then hospital costs go down, mm-hmm. not to mention mortality rates and suffering.
0: Yeah, And we see this with paid leave, too. I mentioned that um, what we're hoping to create is a paid family medical leave system that includes not only um, parental leave for new children, but also covering elder care. We've seen results in California um, when their paid family leave system was put into place, that it actually reduced elder nursing home usage um, by about 11 percentage points. That's, um, and so that is saving money for the Medicaid and Medicare system.
1: Okay, because 11 points, that's a big difference. What kind of dollars does that represent?
0: Um, I'd have to look up a specific dollar number, um, but you can imagine.
1: It Yeah, and that this is a national statistic so that it's the ripple effect of each individual not having health care or having health care and how that plays out on a national scale. Exactly. So talk to me about some of, once again, I want to slice into the differences in the population, because we're talking broadly now. How does this affect women of color as compared to white women? So
0: we know that across the board, the combined effects of um, the kind of gender discrimination we've been talking about and the racial and ethnic discrimination um, that is really, unfortunately, pernicious um, can mean that the, the effects are both um, starker, often for women of color, and sometimes a little bit different. Um, and so when you think about an issue like, for example, sexual harassment, um, this is an issue that often affects women at work, um, but it may take different shapes depending on who that woman is. Um, so if we're talking about a, a Black women in a workplace, it may be this combined sexual and racial harassment that's happening. Um, or when you're talking about a, um, um, a Latino woman applying for a job, she may be experiencing both discrimination based on her gender and also discrimination and stereotypes based on her background.
1: So shes that's part of why the wage gap is so different as we slice it into different populations. Are there different impacts on the distinct populations that make up the country when we talk about healthcare care too. are black women having different experiences because of um health care expenses than white women are?
0: Yeah, yeah. and and we also see sometimes unfortunately discriminatory treatment um, where um, across the healthcare care system, we unfortunately often find that health care providers are less likely to listen to women. Um, so when women report pain, they're less likely to believe uh, to be believed by their doctors that they're really experiencing some pain. Um, and that's really magnified for many women of color um, where doctors may come in with stereotypes about, um, you know, who women are just complaining um, or really racist stereotypes about people's bodies supposedly being different, um, which are absolutely that's not.
1: Shocking. Like, that's shocking. that's all disgusting. But that's particularly like how can anybody believe that and have a medical degree?
0: Yeah, it's, it's really shocking. Um, and so trying to get a, a, the healthcare system as a whole um, to, you know, this is sort of both about, you know, people need insurance, people need lower healthcare costs, but they also need to be treated well and listened to by their doctors.
1: So I know Serena Williams has really been um, uh, an important advocate for these issues, particularly around uh, maternal experiences, and that black women are three to four times more likely to experience pregnancy-related death. Can you talk to me about why the stakes are that high and it's affecting so many women?
0: Yeah, it is absolutely shocking, and I hope every time someone hears that statistic they are shocked. Um, We have unconscionably high maternal mortality rates in this country, um, and it affects black women um, really the most in a lot of ways. Um, You know, nobody should walk into um, a a clinic or a hospital to have a baby and have to worry about whether they're going to come out alive. Um, And so this has a number of factors, um, both the sorts of um, access to health insurance issues we've been talking about, um, access to things like paid sick days and leave to make uh, prenatal appointments, um, access to healthy places to live and healthy water to drink, um, and then fair treatment by doctors. Um, and one thing that um, some of my colleagues here at the National Partnership have been working really hard on um, is expanding access to midwives and doulas to have that really caring provider there with you um, to help uh, make that experience more appropriate.
1: So once again, th- this is clearly our theme of the day, is that we've got to dive in and understand that these, po- these problems are have a huge impact on all swaths of society and that there are all of these Um, details about them that are really important to understand. Like if three to four – if black women are three to four more times likely to die – Going into the hospital to have a baby. That is just horrifying. Um, it's not just about what happens at the hospital. It's what happens throughout the entire um, – her entire pregnancy. And it's the environment that she's in, the food that she has access to, whether or not she has time off from work or how much she's working. Does she have health care? Can she get to the doctor? And then if all of that is, as you said before, controlled for, there's the treatment by doctors. Mm-hmm. And And so – What are the policies that can help to address this?
0: So we support really a whole range of policies to cover all of those, um, what um, public health folks call the social determinants of health, all of the things that go into your health. Um, And so that ranges from the workplace policies I work on. Um, For example, we support the Family Act, which would create a national paid family medical leave program, and the Healthy Families Act, which would ensure every worker could earn paid sick days, um, we've supported many improvements to the Affordable Care Act to make sure, for example, that it treats all people equally, um, regardless of their gender, um, that um, make sure that there is parity between mental health care services and physical health care services, um, and making sure that we make improvements to the delivery of health care um, so that providers know what it actually means to treat their patients well and with dignity.
1: <laughs> that seems like a kind of essential thing. For those who just tuned in, this is Women at Work, and I'm your host, Laura Arrow. I'm talking with Jessica Mason from the National Partnership for Women and Families. If you have a question about what you can do to promote the policies we're discussing, or you want to understand them more deeply, please give us a call. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So Jessica, back up for a second and talk to me a little bit about the changes to the Affordable Care Act that you're seeking. Is it about the that difference of also treating mental health as well as physical health? Or is there more to it than that?
0: Um, There's more to it than that. And I should say that unfortunately, a lot of uh, my colleagues work on the Affordable Care Act right now is really in the defensive mode, um, because there's some really important protections um, that were put in place with the ACA that are currently under attack. Um,
1: And and what are some Uh of them?
0: Yeah, the biggest one that that folks have been working on right now is what's what's called Section fifteen fifty seven, and this is sort of the advantage of being in DC is you're <laughs> often um, working with these very wonky sounding things, um, but that basically is. Um, uh, Ensures that there are non-discrimination protections in the Affordable Care Act. Um, so the idea is that nobody, no insurance provider and really no doctor, uh, no healthcare provider should be able to discriminate against patients um, just because of who, are, who they are or where they're from or what color their skin is, right? Um, and so this section really um, helps bring that non-discrimination protection into um, insurance
1: coverage. So how... Um, What are the details about how it applies? Because it seems like a principle that should just be in place everywhere. What is it about having it in the Affordable Care Act that actually makes sure that some of those protections are there? Does it affect what can be covered by insurance? How does it work?
0: So um, as some folks – I'm not sure how old your audience is, but as many folks may remember, before the Affordable Care Act was passed – Um, We had all kinds of problems with insurers discriminating against different kinds of patients. Um, And so that might mean they would refuse to give you coverage if you had pre-existing conditions. And sometimes they would do things like, say, pre-existing conditions includes things like ever being pregnant um, or having a mental um, mental health condition. Um, and so one of the really great things that the Affordable Care Act did was say insurers cannot discriminate against patients for these kinds of things. Um, you cannot refuse to insure someone because you uh, don't think that their gender identity is appropriate. Um, you can't discriminate against someone just because they've had a baby. Um, and so um, you know that was sort of enforced because of the other changes that the ACA made um, in um, not. not nationalizing our healthcare market, obviously, um, but through creating the exchanges and having some government regulations on different parts of the insurance system, um, it was able to sort of set some ground rules, um, really, for what insurance had to cover um, and how they could treat different patients.
1: So how does this all, so this is potent and important. We could probably talk about it for hours, but there's another aspect of healthcare that I'd like to explore with you, and that's um, reproductive health care.
0: Absolutely. Um, And that's such an essential part of many women's lives. Um, And as you mentioned at the beginning of the program, um, that's whether you have children or ever plan to have children or not. Um, You know, we all have reproductive systems um, and they all affect our health in different ways.
1: And so what are the issues that the National Partnership is trying to address? What do we need to be protected from? What do we need to be aware of as policy is either forming or being undermined?
0: Sure. At the National Partnership, we believe that everyone should be able to decide whether, when, and how to have a child. Um, And so that includes having full access to um, the form of contraception that you prefer. um, If you want to have contraception, um, whether that's the pill or a long-acting form of of contraception, um, and that patients should have um, real choice um, in terms of what kinds of contraception they access Unfortunately, this is another place where we see real racial disparities that, for example, women of color um, are sometimes um, pressured by their health care providers to take a longer acting form of contraception, whereas sometimes white women have trouble getting those kinds. Talk, um, wait, 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 wait. Sure that...
1: This is important. Talk to me about this a little bit.
0: Oh, yeah. So this.
1: It, please tell us. me that this isn't related to the history of forced sterilization.
0: Yeah, this goes back to a really dark chapter in our country's history, um, and and in in some ways in the history of um, the contraceptive movement. Um, So a number of generations ago, um, there were really racist stereotypes about who should and shouldn't have children. Um, and, um, you know, white supremacists believed that, uh, the, basically the white women should be having more children, um, and women of color, especially black and native and Latino women should be having fewer children. Um, And there are even some quite horrific stories about how early methods of contraception were tested without consent on women of color. Mm -hmm. Um, And so coming out of that history, there really are some sort of different um, legacies affecting different communities of women in terms of how they may feel about being prescribed birth control, um, how they may feel about whether or not they're comfortable talking to a doctor about these things, um, and those are legacies in the healthcare system that we are still dealing with today.
1: And so, part of what where this comes um, to roost on a day to day basis now is that Black women may be overly encouraged to have long acting forms of birth control that they can't choose to remove themselves because the medical community is presuming that they will not be making smart choices about their own fertility.
0: That is. One of the dynamics, um, and as we mentioned, it's it's really horrifying. Um, and so when we talk about women having a full access to the form of contraception of their choice, we mean sort of both to have it, what to have it, not to have it if they don't want to have it, um, and to really be empowered to control um, to control their lives that way.
1: And are white women in turn getting every option available, or is once again there a variety of experiences that which make it important for everyone to be protected by this?
0: Uh, there are definitely a variety of experiences across the board, um, and we haven't talked as much about income in this area. But certainly, you know, um, people who can afford to have certain kinds of contraception um, have more access to them. Those longer-acting forms tend to be a little bit more expensive, um, even even when they're supposed to be covered by insurance. People sometimes still have out-of-pocket expenses, um, and and there may be certain kinds of pressure, um, you know, to have the um, um, to not allow um, the longer, form, longer acting forms of contraception um, for younger women um, or for white women, depending on a doctor's stereotypes.
1: So as, obviously, if you don't have contraception, you wind up getting pregnant, not to mention sexually transmitted diseases, but we'll just put that on the side for now.
0: Yeah. Also also important, um, if you are sexually active, please do use condoms.
1: Yes, even with your birth control you got to yeah. protect both things. It um, <laughs> doesn't go without saying. This is our public service message of the day. <laughs> um, so now talk to me about how the National Partnership is approaching um, access to abortion.
0: Yeah, this is a really important issue. Especially
1: us. as a nonpartisan organization.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, and one that really tries hard to partner where we can um, with organizations that may not share all of our, all of our same goals. Um, So when it comes to abortion care, the frame that we really take is what's called reproductive justice. Um, And so that means it is not just about having access to abortion. Um, It is about ensuring that everyone has the full freedom and ability to decide whether, when, and how to have a child. And so in some cases, that may mean um, making sure that women are able to seek safe abortion when they want that, um, and that also means we support, um, you know, as we've been talking about, making it um, fully supported and possible um, and easy for women to have babies and raise them well um, in the way that they like. Um, and that those two things may be happening to the same woman at different moments in
1: her life. And so how does the gag rule come into play here? And what are you guys doing about that? Because it's a byproduct of policy. And may I add, not generated by the medical community, Right.
0: Right, right. I mean, the medical, um, you know, from from public health information, it's very clear that it is good for women's health when they have access to all of the forms of health care and reproductive health care that are available. Um, You know, women are good at making choices for themselves um, when they are informed. Um, And the issue with the gag rule um, is that it would deny funding to organizations that even mention abortion care. Um, And so that means that even whether or not a woman wants to seek that kind of care, um, that she sort of has to choose between the kind of clinic that might talk about it and the kind of clinic that wouldn't. Um, and it might mean that the kind of clinic that really does a good job of informing patients about all of their options um, suddenly doesn't have funding to be able to do that important work. Um, and we know that that is really harmful to women's health.
1: So even in a case where a woman's own health could be compromised by carrying a baby to term, mm-hmm. she can't have her doctor cannot have a discussion with her about an abortion.
0: Right and that is just unsafe
1: and and um and it's also part of a sequence of i mean when i when I look at the darkest version of this, we have systems where, without the protection of policy, we have no birth control, um, pernicious sexual harassment and assault, um, no safe abortion access, no health care, no maternal health care, no um, early childhood health care and no family leave, and reduced wages. It seems like a cycle of um, poverty and torture. Yeah. <laughs> that's kind of then policy created.
0: Yeah, and I'm, I'm laughing because it's it's true, and it's, it's quite horrifying. Um, and this is where I go back to my previous career um, studying the former Soviet Union, um, where in a number of countries, and I'm thinking in particular about socialist Romania, um, they had extremely strict policies outlying abortion for some women, forcing uh, control on other women, um, particularly Roma, um, who are often called gypsies, um, you know, forcibly sterilizing certain women. Um, and then that was associated with a whole really degradation of women in society, that they really were not valued across the board. Um, And so we see this kind of treatment, um, you know, limits on women's reproductive health care often go hand in hand with um, limits on whether women have full political participation and whether they are fully welcomed into all levels of the workplace. Um, And so we see these as really um, policies that that go hand-in-hand, either helping women or really holding them down.
1: Yeah, and I think that's um, an incredibly important point that you're bringing back, that when we go back to having the choice about whether, when, and how to have children, um, if the federal government is creating policy that's diminishing that, it also means they can stop us from having the children that we want. That's exactly right. And that's where um, if we look at it through both sides of it, you can see how incredibly dangerous some of these policies can be. So, Jessica, you have helped us understand a complex world out there for people who want to get involved, learn more, try and help protect the policies that they care about. What can they do?
0: Uh, well, you can definitely visit our website at nationalpartnership.org, where you can learn a lot more about our work um, and get a lot of very wonky information about some <laughs> of the specific bills and regulations we're working
1: on. Um, and I think that's uh, probably the best starting point. Okay. And if people want to follow you on Twitter, is your Twitter handle at NPWF? That is right. Okay, National Partnership for Women and Family. Jessica, I so appreciate you taking the time, and I also appreciate that it's not just the work that you're doing, but it's your personal passion. So thank you for sharing all of it and working on all of our behalf. We really do appreciate it. Thank you
0: so much for the opportunity to speak with you. For more guest interviews, check out our
1: Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.